This podcast is brought to you by the Oatmeal Wallet, available exclusively at tacticaloatmeal.com. Go buy yourself an Oatmeal Wallet, and when you go to check out, use the code COUCHCAST to save yourself 10%. So, this is supposed to be the intro for Alex Fruscino, the uh, crisis counselor hotline person. And uh, anyway, I just, I thought that it was one of the more relevant, more serious podcasts. Uh, Well, just by the nature of it, obviously it is. But, you know, uh, you know, because we lost someone to that very thing, PTSD, which isn't the only thing that she treats, but it's the, you know, the outcome was the same. So just... I guess I don't really know what I expect to even talk about here. It's just kind of the importance of people like Alex in general. Or maybe you don't think that's important. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are on that thing at all. Oh, um, I do think it's important. I think it's. Um, I think that if we can identify a mental state that would put somebody at risk of putting themselves in harm's way, I mean, that's a... That's an illness. It's there is something going on in their brain, and I believe that there's chemistry there. There's a series of events that have triggered um, certain reactions in a mental state that it's toxic, and I think it's just it gets acidic. You know, it's if we have a way to identify it and a way to treat it, we could prevent it. And I honestly think that suicide is just death by depression. I think that's the worst way to die. I mean, to know that somebody was in such a dark state that they just gave up or just they were so involved with their negative thoughts that they weren't able to see past that. I mean, that's that's heavy. Yeah. So to everybody listening, um, Jeremiah and I much more Jeremiah was much closer than I was, but we had a friend who would come hang out with us at our house all the time in college. And he had just gotten back from, was it, what, did he just get back from the war? He at least just got back from a war zone. I don't remember if he was a contractor or if he had just come back from the Marine, the act, the Marines, like the actual Marines. He was a active, actively serving Marine. He was a, um, I know that one of the titles he held was a uh, demolition specialist. Um, some of the jobs he described were very similar to like what you would see in the movie American Sniper, where they would go out and they'd clear buildings, and and by clear, I mean they would they would engage in combat and be put in situations where they lost comrades and were made to make decisions that most people probably couldn't imagine being exposed to. But I mean, in a nutshell, life or death situations where kill or be killed and um that was uh something that he was heavily exposed to um something that he had talked about and it wasn't something like you hear the people that join the army and maybe they got like a desk job and come back and you could tell they would just they would talk about it and you could tell like he was part of it and it wasn't by choice. I mean, he got put in a lot of situations and you could argue and say it may have been by choice. He knew what he signed up for, but I don't think anybody can comprehend what they're about to see. And I think growing up our generation, there wasn't a lot of combat until, I mean, there was a big period of, I wouldn't say peace, 
I mean, you're the history guy. I don't know. But I remember growing up and knowing a lot of people who were in the army and they came back and I didn't, maybe I just didn't know him well enough, but I didn't hear the stories, but being so close to him, I heard, I heard some pretty in-depth things that were just gruesome. I mean, my dad was in desert storm and he never told me any stories until recently, like very, very recently. Uh, and it was definitely very intense. The difference is talking, you know, talking to soldiers who have come back recently. It's just a different war altogether because it's, you know, it's not conventional warfare in any regard. It's all guerrilla. It's all, I mean, you always have to worry about a pile of trash on the side of the road that might be an IED. Um, you know, we both know people who have, who've been through that and we can't comprehend it at all, but I guess the point is, um, you're right. It is totally different. And this guy you grew up with in high school and, you know, you hung out with him fairly regularly and then you only saw him after the war briefly. I mean, were there any signs that this was even a potential thing to be worried about? Because I didn't, I obviously didn't know him as well as you, but I didn't. I mean, maybe we didn't pay attention to stuff. I don't know. I'm not blaming us. I'm just saying like, no, I get it. And I mean, I'm at a point where I can talk about a lot of things. And I mean, if I could just share this, the story, it would be kind of cool to kind of let it out a little bit. But I knew, um, I mean, my friend's name was Zach. I knew him, um, in high school and just sat next to me in English class and he was just kind of a goof and, I mean, it ended up being a guy that I just loved chilling with. He was really cool, had a had a good personality. He was just always joking around. Very, uh, um, he was just a meathead, and you just loved him. But um, on total, just by chance, I got a job working for his uh, older brother, and I didn't even know that my boss was related um, to one of my friends. And that same boss, his name was Josh, and he uh, ended up becoming one of my, like, I would guess, a mentor, somebody I looked up to, and I mean, just all around a good guy. And um, on chance again, I worked out with his middle brother at the rec center, who I just met. And I don't even remember how I met him, but it just kind of this trifecta, that's what they called it, of just brothers that I grew really close to. And so even when I wasn't around Zach, I still heard the stories and I still heard kind of what he was doing. I was always kind of in the know and he would... Um, the trifecta, by the way, was all just like huge, muscle-bound, awesome, super nice dudes. Just the goal of every young man was to be like these guys. They were, I mean... Each of them had their own style and their own category. One was, I mean, they all grew up with very strict uh, moral backgrounds, just good people in general that just really would never do anything wrong. But at the same time, they were just total badasses. They were all, when I say they exercised and lifted weights, they did it to the extreme. Like it wasn't like a normal guy who just kind of casually goes to the gym. These guys were gym rats. They were like the, probably the only gym rats that I knew of that were, by definition, like a, uh, a bro before bros got swole. And, um, that was kind of their outlet, but, um, they all kind of had their own way about them. Um, Zach was, he was probably, uh, 
he was the youngest one and um he was a wrestler he uh he he just he was just a i don't know he, he just had his own style very unique he kept to himself he never picked on anybody i mean these were the all these guys were just nice dudes but um yeah zach joined the military as soon as we graduated um, a lot of us went the college route and uh, that was what he did and uh he got a uh, station in hawaii he did his training there he uh built a life there uh he had he had friends out there he developed comrades and he went and he did his tours and I, I can't can't recall exactly how many i think it was somewhere between three and six it was a lot i know it's a big difference it's hard to it's a big mistake not to know how many but there was there was some like i remember the first time he went it was like my boy zach he went off did gi joe shit in my eyes that's how i saw it came back and he was slightly different like okay he came back he had kind of a, a way about him that was just okay he's seen some shit he still a nice guy but he came back and he was a little bit more calmed down and then um he'd go off again he came back and like i would be uh going to i, I was going to unt and just partying and just doing 19 20 year old shit and he would come back and he just had like this uh he just changed again like it was very subtle but he was still my friend he was still cool he was still so he was still fun to hang out with but i remember the biggest switch was when we were in his car and we used to listen to just we used to listen to just metal and just you know teenage music and i remember i was playing like corn or deftone something really extreme before we were going to work out and he was just in town for a little bit we were just going to grab a workout at the wreck and he turns it off he goes i don't want to hear that man I was like, all right, bro, why don't you want to get amped before you go to the gym? Let's go kill some weights. And I remember he just kind of suddenly just goes, puts on, um, it was like Michael Buble or something. And he's like, dude, I'm around that all the time. Let's lift some weights. We'll lift heavy, but let's just chill. And he was just kind of like, I could just tell he didn't want to be around that combat. He, he'd kind of grown out of it. He uh, went back, came back, and uh, I mean, he would be gone for like a year at a time. I mean, this is a, over the course of three or four years, and every time he would come back and he would be kind of like a, a weathered old man. He was like a weathered soldier. I mean, you could tell, like, he'd have more tattoos, he would have battle scars. You'd hear about real stories where he like got hit by an AED, went to the hospital, like, went through some serious shit. And when he came back, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go into too much detail, but if I asked about it, he would be open. He would tell me things and then I'd kind of share my opinion. And then he would kind of, he would listen and he never criticized me for thinking anything. He never got weird. If I asked him something, he never, he never like skidsed out or gave any of the normal signs that you hear about. But, um, I could tell that he was just quiet, melancholy sometimes, and you'd catch him deep in thought, and then um, we'd go out drinking, and if he drank, you could, you could see it come out. You could see, um, you could see like, um, like the sadness, and like the, 
just kind of like the presence and the darkness that was just kind of like he was just battling through. Like he was just, it's like he was going through a really bad breakup, but you couldn't pull him out of it. But I just can't, I can only imagine it being worse. Um, it was, uh, looking back on it, I see, I see little signs, like little things, like, but I don't know what I could have done to help. I mean, it's one of those things where you're around him and you can see him going through these things. And the only thing you can think to do is just bro it up with him and like go out and drink and do things that, that I knew how to do and chill and have fun and, and, um, party. And I could tell he appreciated it and he had fun. And I'm glad that I got those moments with him. Um, but yeah, it was a, you could tell there was a difference over time. He, it changed him. Yeah. I remember, I remember noticing the music thing as well. Uh, cause I gave him a ride home one time and it was the same thing I was playing. I don't even remember what I was playing, but it was some, something kind of dark, but I was enjoying it because, you know, my life isn't filled with darkness. So it's kind of an interesting, weird entertainment for me. And he, he said the same thing to me. He was like, dude, I, I'm not feeling this at all. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, what do you want to listen to, man? And same thing. He wanted to listen to something super lighthearted and just fun. And, uh, that goes into my all-time uh, favorite Zach moment was you and I were living in Yale House at the time, which is where he came to visit us, and he would party with us on Fry, and we were just douchey college kids. So our our standard pattern was go to Fry, get way too drunk, come back with a whole gang of people with stupid dubstep blaring or some kind of ridiculous dance music or a little John or something really dumb, just blaring. And, uh, we were trying to have some kind of like makeshift dance party, which was going over pretty well. But, uh, a, a few people were a little uncomfortable cause it's intimidating just to be around a bunch of douchey bros who are blaring like twerk music, shake your booty, <laughs> bring a bunch of girls that don't know you. You don't know them, put them in a room and then peer pressure them into taking their clothes off. Yikes. No, we never did that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you did it <laughs> anyway. Um, Zach noticed the situation, man. And he wasn't down for this stupid music anyway. And we never should have been. It was garbage. <laughs> it's just what was playing at the time. And he, he goes in and he takes over and he gets his phone and the dude put on Sinatra and that's when the dance party took off, dude. Like everybody started slow dancing and like doing spins and dips. And it was awesome. It was seriously, it's seriously one of my all time favorite memories in that house. Too. Yeah. Like the, of all time. I remember everybody was dancing and it was no longer hypersexual. It was no longer this like just weird moment of just like, let's get a party going. It was like, he took you out of that grungy, dark, disgusting, raunchy party. He took that atmosphere out and filled it with light. Yeah, it was, it was really, really awesome. And that turned things around. And I remember us kind of carrying that. I remember, I, I will never forget that moment. And like, I remember us carrying that into other things just being like, okay, 
people want a lighter mood. And that was just, it was just a beautiful moment and everybody had a great time that night. So anyway, this podcast, I guess, goes out to Zach, man. That's cool. And he was a badass dude and I'm a better man for knowing him. Yeah. And, um, yeah, to Zach. To Zach. Sorry for the way more of a bummer than usual podcast, guys, but it's kind of a serious topic. Alex Fraschino is an awesome person who really cares about her job and really wants to be there for people. It was her passion in school, and that's what she took into her career. So um, here's Alex Fraschino, the crisis hotline counselor. Maybe, maybe Ryan can sing about going into battle and the calmness of Sinatra. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, good luck, dude. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, here's a song by Ryan Harris. And enjoy the podcast. I know it's tough sometimes. It feels like no one understands. But just reach out your hand. Don't let the trials in life weigh you down You're not the only one Overwhelmed and beat down Just call me when you're feeling low This war cannot be fought probably introduced you incorrectly to a lot of people already i'm like oh i've got this person coming on they're really exciting they're a suicide hotline operator mm-hmm. but then i thought about it and i was like that may not be the pc name right. so what is what is it actually <laughs> what, what actually is your title? do i do mm-hmm. well um technically i'm called um i you know we call ourselves like crisis specialists working with um you know, mental health crisis, um, in the field of counseling, um, you know, pretty unique because, um, you know, not a lot of people surprisingly in the mental health field are as familiar with, uh, risk and handling really serious suicidal situations, um, where people are at risk of harming themselves or somebody else. So, um, it's pretty cool that we have, um, the ability to, intervene and and talk with those people who are really at that point and um, able to really help them out through that situation. So you'd say like basically most therapists would operate on the basis of, okay, you've got this appointment a few weeks out. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk then about how you're how you've been doing, mm-hmm. but you guys are the people there in mm-hmm. case something's not going well right then. Exactly. So it's, um, you know, any crisis, um, hotline situation is going to be available 24 seven, just like if you were in a medical emergency needing to go to like an ER or talk to a nurse hotline or something when you had, you know, some serious illness that you needed immediate attention for. It's the same situation. It's, um, you know, you go see your therapist one time a week, 
um, maybe knowing that, oh, I don't know if I'm going to make it to that next appointment because this stressor came up or something really difficult happened. I ran out of my medication. I, you know, not doing well, had a death in the family, whatever the situation is, um, and you need to speak with somebody immediately. That's what a crisis line is there for, is for you to reach out when things are getting to that boiling point and it's led to you you know, even possibly wanting to end your life doesn't necessarily have to be that situation either. Sometimes people think, oh, I have to be at the bottom of my barrel, you know, in right. order to call somebody, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you can call something like that anytime because you're just so desperate to, to talk to somebody to help you through your problem where, you know, and um, the main complaint is that people seem to lack like a thorough support system with family or friends who understand and aren't involved. So it's nice to have that third party person, you know, just like any therapist would be that third party person. And, and when you're dealing with that, um, embarrassment and shame and just devastation, um, it's really hard to speak to sometimes a friend about that or especially cause they could feel the judgment <laughs> coming from those people, exactly, which can oftentimes make it worse it usually does um it usually does because families are not trained to appropriately interact and people have their own shit and they have their own issues so they you know sometimes don't want to hear yours or um you know it's really rare to find somebody in a uh, family or friend relationship that you can really go to as um talking about really personal stuff so is it, um, and you don't have to say exactly which hotline it mm -hmm. is if you don't want to, but, um, mm -hmm. is, is this more, is this the kind that's like, uh, sorry, is this the kind that's mostly told about by your HR department? And they're like, Hey, um, if you guys are having any stressful times, call this number, or are you more or less expecting to get the calls from these people? Like, are they referred from a psychiatrist, uh, otherwise who says, Hey, call these people if I'm not available? Mm -hmm. Or I don't know, how does it work? Is yeah, it anybody so, can call? Yes. Yeah, so it's, um, you know, anyone, anyone can call at any time. Um, normally, um, it's referrals. It's, um, you know, from people in the area, you know, hospitals, psychiatrists, medical doctors, family members, friends, you know, anybody could, um, you know, call on that person's behalf when they're noticing that they're in that kind of situation where they need some more immediate assistance and care. Um, and then, you know, interviewing and going from there to, uh, to figure out what's going on, what's happening with this person. Um, you know, it's, I think it's really helpful too in, in having a family member or a friend or a doctor to speak to, um, putting all those puzzle pieces together really helps you get a really great handle on who that person is and what they're going through. Cause sometimes, you know, people are going to lie. People are going to minimize their situations. People are not going to feel comfortable when they're just talking to me for the first time, um, about their situation. So it's nice to have other input from as many people as possible who are familiar with that person really to make the best decision on their care and really get them the help that they need and understand really what's going on okay so there is some follow-up to it it's not just somebody calls when they're having a bad time and mm -hmm. you're just like okay well 
feel better. <laughs> Hope you take my advice See you to later, heart. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there's a there's a whole uh, process of, of things to um, to look at, and um, you know, there's so much you know to a person. Like I said, there's there's going to be minimization of somebody who's uncomfortable. So really focusing on building that rapport, empathizing with what they're saying, really trying to figure out what's going on, and then from there, you have so many other pieces to look at their environmental stressor, whether or not they're abusing drugs and alcohol, um, what medications they're taking, their diagnosis, um, their history, their, um, you know, past traumas, um, you know, all of that stuff encompassing into one and really being able to be a clinical professional to tease all those pieces out and see how they all fit together of how this person got to where they are and determining their risk for really following through with harming themselves or somebody else. Um, so it's, you know, definitely like figuring out a jigsaw puzzle. So how do you determine, you said harm themselves or somebody else. Do you ever have any red flags where you think, okay, this person probably is at risk to harm themselves? Mm -hmm. And how do you differentiate between this person is probably at risk to harm themselves or someone else? Like, mm -hmm. can you tell the difference? Or is it usually just, this person's a wild card, this mm -hmm. could be something we need to look into? Well, there's, you know, ultimately with anybody with a mental health diagnosis, that automatically is placing somebody at a risk um, that of somebody that, you know, could potentially harm themselves in the future um, if the right stressor combination. I look at risk as like what we call in the profession, like a dialysis stress model, meaning there is a basic genetic predisposition, right, for somebody having bipolar disorder, for somebody having schizophrenia, et cetera. Um, also somebody being more prone to alcoholism or drug, some kind of drug dependency, what have you. Um, that is like a biological genetic basis, right, of mm -hmm. somebody's makeup that we can't really necessarily alter, sometimes with only medication, as what we know now with, through the research. Then the next piece of the puzzle you're looking at is the environmental stressors. So it's like making a cocktail is how I think of it, okay. right? So you have like, okay, you have the basic glass. Let's just say that's the biological genetic makeup. Then we're adding in a little bit of club soda. Maybe this is a woman who was um, sexually molested at age 13. Um, so now she has a pretty significant trauma now dealing with post-traumatic stress. Maybe she also, that glass genetically, um, um, you know, has a genetic disposition for bipolar disorder. So now we added some more into her cup. Now we're adding her vodka. Let's say she is now abusing alcohol and methamphetamine, oh, literally, vodka. Okay. <laughs> literally vodka, to self-medicate um, because her trauma is so great. Um, let's say she has limited support. Maybe mom's not really there, has her own mental health needs as well. Let's say, for example, um, you know, she's been kind of bouncing around from various family people, so really hasn't had a steady support. So now we're kind of adding her whatever would be like Sprite or Coke or what have you. Um, and then we're kind literally of literally Coke. Or literally. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that one's just an analogy. All right. <laughs> so we're now shaking up her drink and, um, and it tastes really bad. Yeah. You know, because she has 
not the right combination of all these things and now she's kind of crossed over that line where a good what could be a good drink is now a really shitty tasting drink um so i think everybody has various levels of you know kind of their genetics their situation you know another example would be let's say that same woman you know kind of prone to these things genetically but let's say she wasn't traumatized let's say she wasn't raped um so now she doesn't have that that gross part of in her glass anymore and so now she can kind of make a little normal drink and she and that's good so because she didn't have that you know maybe additive stress that set her over the edge to push her to abuse meth or alcohol what have you um another thing too when thinking about that i just like to give that as an example because i think it's really relatable for people to understand however that there's so it's just good because there's so many factors that come into figuring out a person what came first the chicken or the egg like literally that's sometimes what we're dealing with and figuring out you know how all these pieces fit did they start abusing meth first or did that come after because all these other stressors happened prior to that so figuring that out is really can be a big challenge so maybe this is a weird question but mm-hmm. um you you kept bringing meth up is meth something that you see regularly as in mm-hmm. Okay. I think <laughs> pretty common then. Um, well, in the state of Texas, it's the number one utilized um, illicit drug. Um, also, it's used intravenously. That's our method of choice, which is, um, you know, I think that there's um, some more serious repercussions of that um, because of the the way of use and. Um, I just, you know, kind of use it as a go-to example, but I think out of one of the substances, because it's it's cheap, it can be made pretty pretty easily. Um, you know, it's pretty easy to find when you're dealing with um, individuals. The majority of the mental health population usually falls in the lower socioeconomic bracket, and so when you see people who are struggling with that, um, they're probably going to go to something that they can more regularly utilize okay Mm -hmm. do people often call under the influence or is that not regular um you know it's possible um i think any mental health counselor would um have the experience of dealing with a patient who comes into the office possibly intoxicated um i feel that with um what i do and what other mental health providers will do is that you know in, there's a very fine line. Um, now, if somebody is becoming verbally abusive or inappropriate and they're under the influence, obviously we're not going to interact further with them. However, um, there are times when somebody's, you know, dependent upon alcohol and they have to drink to avoid going through withdrawals of death, but they're seeking help, you know, in those occasions. And yeah, you know, we want to intervene and, and act appropriately and talk to that person. Whereas most mental health providers, maybe more private setting probably would be like you can't come to my office unless you're you're not drinking so it really varies um i think that in more private sector you have more um set stricter boundaries with that but you know anybody who's in crisis or working in a mental health emergency type setting um is not going to turn away somebody for being under the influence um and so that can happen pretty frequently okay um so obviously your line of work has gained much attention lately probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you've had a lot of people asking you about it. And mm-hmm. um, 
one thing that I noticed uh, after Robin Williams' death mm -hmm. is that a lot of people were making posts about it that were very uneducated. Mm -hmm. I'm not educated other yeah. than talking to you like twice now. <laughs> but I know that it, it's probably very frustrating seeing all these people like lash out against things. A lot of people saying things like, uh -huh. uh, you know, why would you do that? That's so ridiculous. He made a choice. Right. Um, of course, way worse things coming from the religious right saying, oh, well, too bad he's in hell now, stuff like that. Sure. So when you hear things like this, mm -hmm. if you were going to explain it to someone to, in order to change their mind, how would you explain something like that to say, hey, this isn't an obvious choice for this person. Sure. This isn't, yeah, I don't know. I think that's a really great question. Um, you know, a lot of my, my, fr my close friends and colleagues who are in the mental health profession, we do get asked about that a lot and everybody's like what is your take and it's very frustrating mm -hmm. um the nice thing i will say is that with social media there were some really positive articles and things that i've got from my superiors about suicide and bringing it to the forefront which i thought was really important to do and that as a society start looking at mental health from a perspective of you know, better understanding depression, better understanding, like I said earlier, that that um, example that I gave with the cocktail, how all those factors contributed, what pushes Robin Williams over the edge rather than just anybody dealing with depression. What is the difference there? And, um, you know, I, I don't know him personally, of course. Um, you know, I wasn't part of his treatment team, so I don't really know exactly what was going on with that situation. Um, but what I can tell you is that there are some pretty significant differences of things that we need to start looking at as a society and better understanding, doing the research and better educating ourselves on what contributes to that and, and you know, having a better thorough perspective. Um, you know, it's really worrisome to me that sometimes, you know, I'm pretty new in this profession. I haven't been doing it for very long, but I'm doing something that most people who have been in the profession for 40 years have really no idea about. And I think that that's one of the most important things. Another thing that kind of freaks me out too is that even in my uh, master's program, you know, we really didn't talk about suicide and how to further dig into that and what to do. We got it like a basic step-by-step -step protocol, ask, do they have thoughts? Do they have a plan? Do they have intention? And that's it. Um, Weird. That seems like a, a major area of that you would focus on. But. Sure, exactly. I mean, it's, um, it's scary. Or, hey, call, call a crisis hotline or call a suicide hotline and they'll kind of take care of it and pick up the pieces. And, um, you know, we're neglecting so much in, in our industry to address this really important thing. And, um, you know, kind of, it kind of worrisome me. Um, a little bit though, I think it, you know, I think that having organizations like what we do and, and other organizations out there addressing um, suicidal thinking and planning and, you know, the ability for somebody to follow through with something that serious, um, you know, really, I think is so important to have. And, um, you know, I think that there's a brighter side to that, even though there's a frustration, but um, there's so many, you know, there's so much room to, to grow and to do the research and to educate ourselves and putting it out there. Um, I think that there's a lot of 
political barriers with that and a lot of things that, you know, people have their own biases about. I mean, even within my own family personally, of uh, my family members telling me, Oh, you know, I can't I couldn't imagine like how do things have to get that bad? Well that's that's you I mean know? that's the question that I keep hearing too. And mm-hmm. it's like, well, you're saying that because you have the benefit of not being in that same situation. Exactly. Which is great for you. Mm-hmm. But that's the whole point is that people need to understand. Mm -hmm. So another question that I got, because I went around asking people and preparing Mm -hmm. them for you, (laughs) but uh, another question that I got, or it wasn't really a question, it was more of an assumption, I suppose. Mm -hmm. It said, well, I figure most of the people who call this hotline are really looking for attention. And this Mm -hmm. is a common thing that people bring up about suicide, is that they're they're reaching for attention, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Saying if they really wanted to do this, they would have done it, they wouldn't be calling a hotline. Mm So I'm sure you have some <laughs> opinions there. Uh, let's hear them. Um, you know, I I think that there are, you know, like I mentioned, there are all sorts of motives and reasons uh, for why people call. I can't give you a straight list of this is what needs to happen in order for somebody to cl- complete suicide. This is what needs to happen for somebody to call us. All I know is that... Um, the people that I speak to and see on a daily basis are hurting. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there who are hurting. The people that I speak to are the people who are brave enough to even call in to acknowledge some on some level, even if they're not admitting it when I'm in person or on the phone or whatever, or what have you, there's some level of them recognizing that the way that their lives are playing out what's going on is not how it should be and they're taking some kind of initiative even if it's calling in and yelling at me for 20 30 minutes about it that's okay they're still acknowledging that there's some kind of issue on some level um people who choose not to um you know sometimes the pain is so excessive and they didn't have a support or maybe education or knowledge of help out there, or maybe they weren't ready or they didn't want it. Um, you know, there's all sorts of sen- different scenarios with that, with people who, who complete that. Maybe we've never even had a, a you know, a, a way of, of even touching or an interacting with. Um, but I know that ultimately, um, what we do and how we engage and how things play out really does make a difference. And, um, you know, I wish people would utilize, you know, that more, um, and just acknowledge it. I mean, think that there's just so much stigma, um, in society with, and I know that that's such a cliche statement to make. Um, but with regards to, you know, oh, suicide and, you know, oh, people are just crazy. Um, if you call in and you have a mental health issue, you're just crazy. And, um, that's not really the case. Um, you know, I, I know that I myself have dealt with things, as I'm sure you have, as I'm sure mm-hmm. your friends have. Um, that doesn't make me crazy. That just makes me human. You've probably had some of these same friends who question this coming to you for help. Right. But because they're not <laughs> calling you at your work number, they mm-hmm. feel better about it. Right, exactly. But it's probably the same thing. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, I think everybody seeks advice. Everybody wants some kind of internal 
validation. Mm -hmm. Um, everybody wants support and they want to feel, I think, and then this is just my own theoretical perspective and I'm not speaking for every other mental health person out there. Um, but I just think that people innately want to have, um, human connection and that people want to, um, feel that some kind of support and feel validated and feel self-worth. And when those kind of internal emotional things are ripped away in some kind of form or fashion, um, then that propels a whole big, a big thing. And I think people just really want to try to do whatever they can to get that back. And sometimes people turn to maladaptive ways to do that. Um, like drugs and alcohol, um, you know, negating their feelings, doing a lot of the avoidance, um, not knowing how to communicate about it, not really seeking to, um, identify or understand a different perspective because they're afraid. So that being said, mm-hmm. how do you how do you do that for them without them becoming mm-hmm. without risking them becoming dependent on you, I suppose? Right, it's really hard because I think that you have to do a really graceful tap dance of empathizing when it's appropriate, um, validating people when they're hurting, validating the emotion but yet you're still setting limits. So you're kind of still, um, acknowledge, it's almost like, um, one of the best things I think, um, one of the best, better techniques out there that I personally like to utilize, especially having a, um, past working with children is, um, it's like kind of like, it's called like a limit setting where you're validating like a, you know, like a five-year-old who's screaming for a toy. You're validating like, oh, God, I know you want that choice so bad. I know you're so sad about it because you can't have it. Um, but if you would ask nicely to mommy or whoever, you could have the toy. And then the child then learns, yeah, I'm really sad because I wanted that thing. Damn it, I couldn't have it. Mm-hmm. But if I stop screaming for it and I actually ask nicely, I get what I want. And so you're teaching in that moment, appropriate ways for a child to learn how to ask, but I'm not telling them, shut up, stop screaming, mm-hmm. you know, go to your room. Uh, you can't talk to me that way. Um, that's not productive, right? You know, that's not helping. That's just, that's just shaming that child. Now I've created a bigger situation for myself where that poor kid is now even more saddened because Oh, now I pissed off my parent and no one's acknowledging me how sad I am and I'm still not getting what I'm wanting. So how do we fix this? So it's almost like that kind of baby example, um, but on a grander scale and even utilizing other techniques and approaches and, and things like that and, and being as graceful as possible um, to acknowledge, but not to facilitate dependency and just give in. So that said, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people do jump to that conclusion of just mm-hmm. shaming the other person. And oftentimes mm-hmm. that's why they're there to begin with mm-hmm. in that state. Mm-hmm. So do you have advice for people when their friends come to them? Mm-hmm just general advice for someone who's not as qualified as you, like how should they deal with it rather than saying, Hey, don't be a pussy or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I think it's important for people to recognize their boundaries. And I tell this to families, friends who are um, wanting to help and support somebody, but they don't really know how. Um, Because you're right, they don't have the training. They don't always know. Um, I think it's knowing yourself and your boundary. If you're feeling really stressed out and you're having your own shit that you're dealing with and somebody's coming to you and laying more shit on top of your shit, um, you know, I think just politely saying, you know, now's not a really great time. I'm sorry you're having a hard time. You know, I'm here for you, but, you know, maybe we can talk about this sometime else. Or, you know, just commonly something like that, acknowledging your own stuff as well and, you know, still kind of empathizing with that person so they're not feeling rejected by you. Um, Telling them to just suck it up, buttercup, um, (laughs) probably not the best way, which I know that um, it's really hard for people to get out of their own, and sometimes even for myself and and other people in the profession, I'm sure, to get out of their own minds and their own bullshit and really just acknowledge that, hey, I need to be here for this person. I mean, that's what I do. That's, That's my profession. That's what I you know, know I'm, I'm good at, but at the same time, you know, you can, everybody can still struggle with that because it's hard not to overlay your own stuff. And so just like I said, you know, knowing your own boundary and, and if you feel like, you know, I I don't really know much about that. I don't really understand much about what you're going through because maybe I've never had that similar experience then telling them, you know, maybe you should seek and talk to somebody who does understand that, whether it be a therapist or, you know, calling a crisis line or, or what have you of somebody who is more trained and more able to, to handle all this stuff and, and there to listen to you. Right. Mm-hmm. So you talk about dealing with your own stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that comes in at the job to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you separate the two? Like, how do you leave work and not let that those things burden you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a really... Um, sometimes can be really challenging. Um, just, just recently in the, in the past year, I had some last, last time earlier last year, I had, um, several pretty big, big things happen in my life at once. And, um, I remember that, you know, it was, you know, really difficult because, you know, talking with people who are struggling with a lot of their own stuff, you know, and, and not letting my stuff get in the way of that. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was really attending to my own self-care, really taking a time out when I needed to and acknowledging my own stuff, um, you know, separately outside of the work environment, also having support from colleagues and people that were around me to help me get through that. And also one of the things that I, I noticed that I did and, and this was, I know, um, a big help is really changing my mindset because when I got into work, I was just, you know, I'm there to do, to do this what I need to do. And, um, not, it doesn't mean that my stuff doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's recognizing that, that, you know, positive thinking, that positive positivity of, you know, I'm here to do what I need to do to help these people. And I can deal with my own stuff here in a little bit and setting my own boundaries for myself. Oh, you know what? Today's a really emotional day for me. Um, I dealt with a pretty heavy case with a client. Um, I can't, be here right now. I need to take some time and, and take break. Um, so it's recognizing that I think that there's a balance is sometimes that where things are like, Oh, you know, they're manageable.
table today. I'm in the zone. I'm, I'm so focused and helping this person. I don't even think about it. And then there's times when like, oh my God, today was just system overload for me with, with X, Y, and Z and my own things at home that it's like, okay, now I'm just going to go sit down for a minute and, and Zen and do some meditation or yoga or drink alcohol. I mean, whatever, whatever's You're adding help. the vodka to the cocktail. Yes. <laughs> I, oh. I usually go with wine as my preferred, but right on. so, um, do you find yourself, this is kind of pretty much the same question, mm-hmm. but I guess, do you find yourself becoming callous as a result or did you ever early in mm-hmm. have that kind of problem? Because I worked a job mm-hmm. definitely not as intense, but I dealt with mm-hmm. corporate people's corporate problems all the time, yeah. which wasn't as serious, but mm-hmm. it got to the point where after doing it for too long, I was just like, okay, I no longer empathize. I'm just trying to get this over with and problem solve. Yeah. I think you, um, you know, I had a, I had a situation a couple, you know, several weeks ago where I was noticing myself, you know, kind of, kind of getting burnt out and, and feeling really overwhelmed and feeling really stressed with everything and, and noticing myself detaching mm-hmm. and not being as involved and as, um, engaged as I used to be. And I really had to sit down and figure out what's going on with me internally, for what's causing that, what's in the environment around me and work together to, um, improve that and recognize that. I think that that's a natural thing for a lot of people in our profession to go through. Um, but it's, it's how you handle it and being, um, you know, as thorough and able to recognize and acknowledge and take responsibility because I feel like, um, you know, a lot of people think of mental health professionals as like, Oh my God, these people just have their stuff together. Mm-hmm. And that's, what's kind of intimidating, right? Cause like, why would you want to tell somebody your deep, dark secret if they have their life like perfectly aligned? Right. But the truth is like, we don't, we're probably even more crazy than you think. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but you know, we also have, and I think it's good because it helps me help my clients to do that. If I'm doing it as well and saying, you know what, I'm really stressed out today or I'm exhausted. Oh, I'm so sick of hearing about X, Y, and Z. If I hear about it one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. And, you know, it's just like acknowledging, like, you know, even sometimes in the moment. And Mm -hmm. I think, um, that can be really powerful. Um, but you know, in, in, a, you know, we have you know, ways of how we do that without being like, you know, telling somebody to shut the fuck up. Right. Um, that's not, <laughs> that's not helpful for anyone. But, um, I think that even acknowledging that too can be really powerful and, and, and humanizing and, and utilizing techniques like self-disclosure, for example, where you're telling a little bit about, you know, your own, but it's, it's still very professional, but it's not overstepping that boundary either where you're getting too deep to where you're losing your stuff. But at the same time, acknowledging that, you know, everyone kind of goes through those. Yeah. And like, I actually do know how you feel. I actually Mm -hmm. have been there and I know Mm -hmm. that this actually did help me. Mm -hmm. I think, um, a lot of clients that I talk to, um, respect, um, seeing the human side of that because, trust me, like if you are robotic or calculated, they're not going to feel helped by that. Um, you know, I think that there's some meth, there's some madness to the method as to still maintain professionality and still do what you need to do ethically and responsibly yet 
to still connect and empathize and to be casual enough to showcase that other side as well. And so I think finding that balance is really important um, within the session or within your interactions um, with clients because, you know, I think that um, they do respect that as well Mm -hmm. um, because they're not looking for, you know, some a-hole therapist who thinks he knows everything and, oh, well, I know all about blah, 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 blah. I'm like, that's not fun. I mean, that's like not going to be helpful, especially this person's already ashamed and embarrassed and devastated and feeling hopeless as it is. The last thing you need to come out with is this, you know, arrogancy or, or something like that. So, um, I think really working through that connection is, is so important. Yeah. So, do you have, talking about the connection, do you ever have people who call in and you've helped them in the past and they request you? They're like, can um, they get the same person over and over or is it just mm-hmm. whoever answers answers? That's a good question. Um, you know, uh, there are times where people feel more comfortable, obviously, that they're going to want to speak to the same person again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's a fine line between acknowledging that and, you know, attending to that as well as, you know, in, in, in our environment, it's really difficult to always, um, attend to that Mm -hmm. in every single situation. Um, so sometimes you just kind of have to deal with who you get, who you get, (laughs) but, um, you know, everybody is coming from the same perspective, the same training, the same background, the same similar education. Um, so, you know, everyone's pretty equipped to handle and manage that appropriately. Um, but I definitely can understand that request and that connection because you are talking about such personal things and you know, in that moment where you really worked with that client and you're seeing them in person, um, of course, you know, if they felt that supported by you, they're going to want to talk to you again because they don't want to, you know, I think the biggest thing and, and the thing that kind of is difficult with what we do and what other mental health professionals do is, um, you know, you're, um, you know, calling in and you can't keep track and it's not the same person always. So it's harder because people get tired of retelling their story and, um, you know, we have ways of, of keeping track of that and keeping up with that because we don't want you to feel frustrated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I can definitely understand where somebody is coming from as to wanting to speak with the same person again, or wanting somebody because they felt that that person really understood, um, you know, and going to some new face, you're like, Ooh, I don't know. Like I just, I just did this. Uh, I don't know how you're going to react. And everyone has different styles and techniques and ways that they go about doing it. There's no way to make it clear the same across the board. There's no standard protocol. It is all very subjective. So when you're integrating that, um, it can be more difficult, you know, to, to, um, you know, rebuild that rapport and what have you. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how is, how is this kind of like who funds this kind of thing since it is a hotline? Mm -hmm. Is it just, is this kind of a not for profit kind of organization? And 
Right. Well, I would prefer not to go into further detail about how the company oh, and fair enough. what what have you works. Um, but I know that there are um, majority of the hotlines that I'm familiar with are usually either coming from some kind of government funding program or something like that. Um, sometimes certain um, mental health um, hospitals and things like that will have their own staff available to um, to speak with uh, to speak with somebody and things like that so it can be in all kind of different environments so is it it's a secular organization or mm-hmm. uh, if someone does bring religion into it like how do you how do you deal with that um, that's a really good question um, you know I think that and I'm speaking for I'm sure so uh, a lot of other mental health professionals and that you know sometimes some some mental health professionals are more um, religiously focused and um, integrate that in their therapy Um, some people are not Um, for me personally and my theoretical orientation um, I don't force any kind of, you know, religious conversation or what have you. If my client chooses to integrate that, I think that there's a balance again, you know, of appropriately integrating and acknowledging, like if somebody's telling me, you know, my faith has really gotten me through all this hard stuff I'm, I'm going through. Well, acknowledging that, you know, that's important to you. And it sounds like that's working for you and, and that's okay. You know, um, but I think that in the grand scheme of things, I don't pull, you know, you don't put, you know, God into the conversation unless my, my client does first. Um, okay. and, um, I think it'd be hard more so. I don't necessarily think it's, um, the religious aspect so much that can be difficult to work with. I think it's more culturally, um, because, you know, I deal, I've dealt with clients from all various cultural backgrounds and understanding how they perceive mental health and how they perceive what's going on with themselves, what their cultural stigmas as, you know, appropriate, not appropriate, whatever, what have you. And working through those barriers, I think is way more of a challenge than just the religion. Ultimately. Um, you know, I think that, uh, seeing that from, you know, various perspectives also too dealing with a language barrier. I mean, forget about it. That can be a really tough challenge yeah. because I'm already facing like a big blocking stone yeah, to somebody, even connect. Somebody's crying words to you. You can't be like, Oh, <laughs> uh, what, what'd you say? What'd you say? Right. And that's, um, that's really hard because you want to make sure that you hear them correctly, right. but at the same time, saying, Oh, can you repeat that again to me? Or, um, can you, can you just say that one more time for me? So I can make sure I'm understanding, um, can be hard too, because sometimes, and this is my own thing that I have about that is that I feel like, Oh, now I'm, I'm losing a little bit of that connection with this person because they feel like I can't even hear and understand them. So how, how am I supposed to understand what they're really going through? Um, so that can be really challenging. I mean, their service is still to utilize and, and, having people who, you know, speak Spanish and things like that. But, um, but it's tough because you still want to be the person that's able to, to speak with that person. Um, but you know, dealing with that can be, can be really hard. Um, 
you know, like I said, I think the biggest barrier with the cultural aspect of it all is um, the stigma on mental health and, um, you know, people in, in certain cultures don't even acknowledge and um, actually manifest their mental health systems through physical ailments of, um, you know, having an upset stomach or sharp pain or things like that. So actually having to figuring out what their physical ailments are in order to say how that relates to their mental health, um, you know, that's even a more difficult puzzle to solve and, and figure out and, and understanding that background and that research um, can be pretty ta- challenging. So are you recording all of this stuff in order to like take note of it later mm-hmm. and like kind of create a profile in case this person does call back? Right. So, Or do you guys call them? Because you said there mm-hmm. was follow-up. Does that mean you guys call them later? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, ethically, it's really important to, you know, always keeping documentation of, um, you know, having a, a system to put notes in for any time you see a client, having some of their basic demographic information. All of that's case sensitive and protected through HIPAA mm-hmm. um, privacy laws. So anytime um, a person calls in and Anytime someone speaks with a mental health professional in any form or fashion, um, your information's kept private. Um, the basic exceptions to that rule is, you know, of course, the immediacy of danger to harming self or others. Um, in that sense, and that doesn't mean that we're just going to go post it on TV. Right. Let me just say that first. Um, what it means is that if I personally as a professional cannot keep you safe or other people safe um, I have to take additive steps as to speaking to family or speaking um, to police even or whatever I need to do to make sure that you're stay safe and I'm gonna do it from the least intrusive to the most um, I'm not gonna just you know go out of my office screaming and say hey this person wants to harm themselves what do we do guys right. um it's more so hey um you know can i who do you feel the most comfortable with do you mind if i talk with your your husband or or whoever right. you don't want to create any sense of betrayal because exactly. that's probably why they came to you to begin with exactly um so taking those so those steps are really important um you know another exception to the rule of course any any legal matters um getting records subpoenaed by the court things like that um testifying in certain um cases you know we we have to do that if it's you know if it goes to that point um there's no guarantee for that um but you know that could be that could be a possibility um, with giving your information to a, a mental health professional. Um, another um, caveat is also the um, reporting abuse or neglect or of a child, elderly or disabled person. Um, so having that said, meaning that we're suspecting you know any abuse, any inappropriate behavior um, that's putting a child or elderly or disabled person in immediate danger or harm, um, we have to report that to the yeah, state of get Texas. Get them out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, so we're always going to say it. Um, and the thing is, I know that that even too can be really kind of scary when people hear that, like, oh, you're going to report this and get me into trouble. Um, you know, the organizations out there who who handle those certain, certain situations are coming from a place of, they're not just going to come in and take your kids. They're not just going to come in, unless it's like such a severe situation and is escalated to that point, you know, they also have various levels that they work at as well. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be actually really beneficial because you have a third party involved um, for the well-being of your family who's trying to mitigate and help 
you know, getting people involved in treatment and care and placement and things of that nature. Um, so sometimes those organizations can actually be really helpful, and I feel like they face, you know, even a bigger stigma than mental health professionals do because people are like, oh, my God, they're going to just come in and take my kids, and because they think I'm crazy. Not necessarily the case always. So. Right on. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I'm doing this entirely out of order, but people are going to be <laughs> mad if I don't ask. So okay. uh, what got you into this? Mm-hmm. What schooling did you have to do? Like, how did you get started? Sure. Um, oh, for me personally, I, um, you know, always had a dry, I like to be challenged ultimately. Um, so I need something that's keeping me on my toes, constantly changing. Um, I wanted a profession that had growing opportunities and different areas to work in and different things to do. Um, so when I was a senior in high school, I had the luxury of having like an internship mentorship program. That was like an independent studies class, um, where I got to pick any professional that I wanted to work with. Um, I ended up working with a school psychologist, um, in the Frisco ISD school's district where I'm from and um, you know just learned a lot about um, working in that environment so I thought I was going to go more into um, you know the PhD realm um, I started undergraduate degree in psychology um, did all my 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 program specifically was more research based um, so it wasn't a lot of clinical work but as I was going through it you know I was kind of tossing like oh do I want to become a psychiatrist and I was thinking of going that route and having that background and then I and then all these celebrities were ODing on like Xanax and stuff and I was like I don't know if I want to be and I'm not to put down psychiatrists at all by any means because I work with some really really fantastic people and I think that that's a really great profession but at that time in my mind I was like you know what I don't want to just be the person where we speak for 15 minutes and that's it you don't want to just sell drugs all day either exactly Um, so for me it was mainly um, you know and and I think that's a chief complaint for a lot of people is that, well, I'm just put on an antidepressant. Why isn't this working? Well, you really haven't dug into the real issues that are going on. So if we're not talking about that stuff, right. you know, change is not going to happen. But beside the point, um, for me, that was um, kind of the key is that clinical work. I'm like, I really want to talk to people and I really want to help them out. You know, I feel like there's so much more to this than just just one aspect. It's just one piece. So, um, then I started doing some research and then I was looking into, you know, cause I always knew I was going to continue education. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with a bachelor's in psychology? Nothing. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, what direction do I need to go into? And so, um, you know, there's, there's varying levels. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at a master's degree in counseling. Most therapists, most clinical therapists are going to be at a master's degree. Um, and then, um, you know, their PhD levels for psychology. Um, the differences between the two really isn't vastly much aside from, um, psychologists can do more standardized testing and they have, um, a doctorate rather than a master's degree. So, so do you think you'll take that last step or mm-hmm. do you think you'll just keep doing what you're doing? Um, I, 
I thought about it. Um, for me and my profession doing counseling, if you go to a PhD doctorate level in counseling, it's mainly if you want to be like a professor and teach and, and do those kinds of things, which um, I am interested in. And so maybe at some point I think I would. Um, another piece of my puzzle is after getting a master's degree, so two and a half year program, maybe anywhere from two to three years, then you have to get a state licensure. Um, there's various licensures, um, you know, either um, LPC, which is Licensed Professional Counselor, or or LMFT, which is Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. I'm Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Um, You take a state test in the state of Texas after you graduate. So you do schooling for two and a half years. Then you have to study for this other friggin' exam. (laughs) And then (laughs) you pass the exam. And then you have to wait for the state of Texas to process your paperwork, which takes 20 years. And no, I'm just joking. Okay. But it yeah, takes obviously. About, You're pretty young. It takes about you started early. Um, a couple months at least because you have to find um, a supervisor, meaning um, another licensed professional supervisor that meets your state licensure requirement that you have to meet with one time weekly. So you take the test. Um, your paperwork finally processes through and you get this pretty card that says, oh, you're a licensed intern and you're not oh, fully fun. licensed yet. <laughs> and then um, for LPCs, it's a minimum of 18 months internship status. For LMFTs, it's a minimum of two years because we have to get an allotted amount of family and um, family and marriage couple of counseling hours. So it takes a little bit longer for us. Then um, in that allotted time for internship, you have to secure 1,500 of indirect hours and 1,500 of direct contact hours with a client. And you have to meet about a week um, time with the supervisor. Normally you have to pay a supervisor. So not only are you continuously broke, you're also paying somebody (laughs) to supervise you for two years. Um, But I can't say that because my supervisor who I see is um, pretty fantastic and she's worth every penny and has really taught me a lot so um, so I think that it's very beneficial like almost like being um, you know in the med medical field where you're um, you know in residency learning right. so it's kind of the same thing but not as much time and um, and then through that internship status once you crew all your hours once that's finished, you submit your paperwork to the state board, and then you are officially fully licensed in the state of Texas once that goes through. And wow. then thereafter, every year, you have to do a certain amount of continuing education credits. So, like, I think it's about 30 hours from what I know. And, um, you know, that's, like, seminars, things like that, which I think that makes sense, Um and it's also a tax write-off, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> but, nice. but that makes sense because, you know, you want to continue to grow and learn in your profession. So um, but, yeah, it's excessive. Considering that you have to get all these requirements and mm-hmm. licenses and stuff, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people I talk to in college mm-hmm. are kind of unsure as to why they're even in the program that they're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this, mm-hmm. you'd probably say you pretty much have to know. It kind of have to be a labor of love, yes. or nobody really falls into this, right? <laughs> well, um, you know, I think that uh, most of the people, either a good portion of, it was like half and half when I went to school. Half of the girls were like totally sold on it, went straight into the program right out of undergrad school like myself. And some, a lot of women, um, mainly women, some men as well, um, mm. were going back and restarting a different career. And 
and just was like, oh, this is what I really want to do. And so, you know, I think that can really vary. Um, I don't think it's ever too late to start, but, um, yeah, it is a lot of time, money and dedication. And so you really do have to be, um, you know, ready to do it, um, and ready to pay back all those student loans. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, I, for one, am really glad that you decided to. We need more people like you out there. Thank you. So um, do you have any closing advice for anybody listening who might want to do what you do? Um, hmm. I don't even know where to start with that question. <laughs> um, don't you know, do it. <laughs> don't, don't do it. Um, you know what? If, if you find yourself no. really invested in people and really wanting to help out and and wanting to to be to make a, a job out of that, um, I say go for it. Um, I don't know if it's for everybody. <laughs> um, I think some people have that um, that you know that voice telling them, "Well, I give advice to my friends all the time, and so I could totally be a therapist." Uh, no, because the one thing that we actually don't do as therapists is give advice, right. which is kind of the irony of it. And um, some I, of them might be there because of my advice. So. <laughs> Um, but I think that, um, you know, if you're really interested in wanting to help out people and, um, you know, think that this is something that you'd like to do, I say go for it. Um, it's not as draining. And actually, you know, really, I love my grad program. Like, I wouldn't have traded it for the world because it was so interesting. And I learned so much. And I had such amazing professors, Southern Methodist University Counseling Program. Shout out um, here. Ooh, <laughs> and <it's high> dollar. <laughs> We're beating you right now. I know that's irrelevant, but that just happened, I think. And, um, you know, I learned so much from them. And I, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. And, um, so I definitely think that it's a worthwhile experience and, and it's one, it's a very special master's program in that you learn everything about yourself that you probably don't want to know yet or want to acknowledge yet. Um, and it is a huge awakening and it, but it's great. It was so beneficial for me. I'm doing what I'm doing. Like I have to do, be able to do that. So. Um, so it was really cool because I don't think there's any other master's program that really focuses on the, the self and, um, you know, self growth and, and things of that nature. So it's pretty amazing. Right on. Mm-hmm. Well, one last question, mm-hmm. uh, since I've asked you a bunch of questions, uh, and you probably go on a lot of dates or meet a lot of people and tell them what you <laughs> do and they ask you a lot of questions. Yes. Uh, what one question could you go without being asked? <laughs> Do you read minds? Are you a psychic? Is probably the worst pickup line, guys, that I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> oh, because you say psychiatry? Yeah. Okay. Or I say, oh, I'm a therapist. And they're like, oh, so what am I thinking right now? Are you reading me? Are you analyzing me? No, I'm just trying to be a person and trying to talk to you. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think it's less scary because it's kind of nice when you actually are in a relationship with somebody who could understand you. And yeah, that's can. true. <laughs> and these people that are afraid of you knowing them, that's probably a good sign to walk away anyway. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it, it kind of narrows it down. It's kind of cool because, um, 
you know, I feel like um, I've been blessed to have um, like a natural intuition about people and just picking up things and and reading in between the lines, regardless of what they're telling me and not, and really putting it together in my head um, to figure out who this person is. And um, so if I do meet you initially and we did go on a date and um, I didn't call you back, you can probably just guess why. <laughs> right on. There was so, no follow up. There was no follow up. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on. Of course. I'm sure people have a lot of questions as a result of this, so I'd love to have you back on. Yes. Did you ever decide if you're going to remain anonymous and mysterious, or should I tell people who you are in the intro? Or would you like to tell people who you are now or no? Um, you can tell people who I am. You can get my first and last name, um, so that's fine. But any other company information, obviously, I'm not going to give you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye.